Welcome to the Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries Podcast, brought to you by Interactive Legal. Here's your host, Mary Vandenack. Welcome to today's episode of Vandenack Weaver Trulson Law Visionaries, a weekly podcast discussing updated legal news as well as evolving methods of providing legal service. My name is Mary Vandenack, founder, CEO, and managing partner at Vandenack Weaver LLC. I will be your host as we talk to experts from around the country about closely held businesses, tax, trusts, and estates, legal technology, law firm leadership, and well-being for lawyers. Before we start today's episode, I want to thank our sponsor. Here's a message from Interactive Legal. There's always a resistance to change, particularly with attorneys. Attorneys like to look back at what's worked in the past, and that makes a lot of sense. But when you realize that with a good automated drafting system, you can do a better job for your clients, deliver documents on a more timely fashion, in a more consistent and in a more costly manner. If you're not a subscriber to Interactive Legal, I urge you to go to interactivelegal.com and click on Request a Demo. And you'll be contacted about having a demonstration of interactive legal for you, which can be done right over the Internet. Don't have to leave your office. No salesperson will call. We can arrange it at a time inconvenient for you. So please go to interactivelegal.com and click on Request a Demo. On today's episode, my guest is Bonnie Baritza. Bonnie is a partner at Erickson Cedarstrom. I first came across Bonnie when we were working together on a case involving trust and estate litigation, and I've really enjoyed having opportunities to work with her over the years. Today, we're going to focus on will contests and lawsuits challenging the validity of a trust. Welcome, Bonnie. Thank you for having me, Mary. So can you provide us a general overview of what type of litigation about when we refer to trust and estate litigation? Well, first, it might be helpful to clarify what an estate is and what a trust is. Both of these are vehicles used to transfer assets to beneficiaries. By its nature, an estate involves a transferor having already passed away. Trusts, on the other hand, are often created during the life of the settler and are sometimes funded during life. Typically, an estate dispute is after the death of someone, while a dispute related to a trust might occur while the grantor of the trust is still alive. And, And so there's a whole bunch of different types of litigation that arise. Can you give us some of the common types? Sure. There's numerous types of litigation that can arise related to trust and estates. Some common types would include claims for breach of fiduciary duty, fiduciary misconduct, undue influence, intentional interference with inheritance, fraud in the estate or in the trust administration, financial elder abuse, will and trust challenges, adult guardianships and corporate or partnership divorce with the ramifications that can be considered in a person's estate planning documents, whether it's just a will or a trust or some combination of those. And I think that one's a really good point because I don't know that people really think about that, but you have a corporate split up and that has a a divorce, spouse might have an interest or we might have made the spouse an owner or things like that. And that has to be considered in the estate plan. So... We're going to focus primarily on challenges to wills and trusts. Can you tell us what gives rise to this type of claim? Sure. There's several different ways that a trust or a will challenge might come up. 
Uh, the primary ways would be someone can allege that a person entered a will or trust and they were lacking the necessary capacity or that the person was unduly influenced by someone else, that there was a forgery in the signing of the will or the trust, that there was some kind of fraud that led to it or induced it. Sometimes there's allegations that there are competing wills in existence, so you might have a two wills signed by the same person and be looking for some kind of judgment or declaration from the court as to which of those is valid and should be probated. And then there can be a question about whether a will was revoked or not, and so whether it's valid and still in effect when the person passes away. And this isn't on your list today, but I'm going to just throw this out because it was a kind of interesting case out of North Dakota, and I think it's worthwhile to mention that holographic wills became more common than we've seen them in the last couple of years with the pandemic going on. And I know that there are situations where we have clients, so some of the states have passed emergency laws allowing us to be a little more flexible in how we could get documents signed. But a wills a lot of time require two witnesses and a notary, and different states had different rules about that. But when you start thinking about the holographic wills, and this is what this case raised in my mind, that North Dakota Supreme Court case basically was a holographic will, which has to be written in the handwriting of the testator, signed by witnesses, and it was a material provision. So they were looking at this, and the guy who submitted the will, which was the brother of the dead guy, came in and said, hey, um, had seven witnesses line up and say that it was all in the handwriting of the guy who passed away. But what the court noted was that there are the language that said, all of my assets shall go to my brother, was in a different typeset, a different size, not the same exact look and handwriting, <laughs> and said no go. But it occurred to me that we may see holographic wills raising some of these issues more often. Is that potentially a fair comment? I think that's a very fair comment. If you have people working on their own documents rather than you know typing things up and involving an attorney, all of these situations can arise there. And of course, you're going to have Maybe the most clear-cut example would be questions of forgery and handwriting and who actually wrote this, who actually witnessed this, and um, a lot more questions about influence when you've got someone doing something on their own without maybe a more objective or a neutral attorney there who's able to kind of suss out some of the undue influence that um, is their job to look for in, in those circumstances. And as an attorney who did resort to recommending holographic wills, during the pandemic, I decided after reading that case, I was going to go back and see who we talked to about that and talk about doing that following up with formalities. Well, there's a couple common issues that commonly result in lawsuits. Can you speak to when those claims arise? Sure. I'd say the the first two that I mentioned in my list there before are probably the most common to see litigated. That would be regarding uh, the allegation someone lacked capacity to enter a will or trust, and then the allegation that there's there was undue influence in the circumstances surrounding entering the will or the trust. These claims arise in the situation after the person has passed away. Uh, they can be stated by someone who would be or would have been an heir if there wasn't a will or a trust, so typically a family member, a child who is left out of the will or left out of the trusts disposition provisions. They have standing if they would have stood to receive if there wasn't a will or a trust. So typically family members, heirs. We are going to take a brief break from our episode for a word from one of our sponsors, Carson Private Client. 
Wealth planning focuses on liquidity management and charges you a fee based on a percentage of your assets. But entrepreneurs typically invest in their business, resulting in light liquidity. That requires a unique strategy. At Carson Private Client, we provide a proactive and holistic strategy for building and protecting your wealth. Our mission is to alleviate the stresses and the burdens of coordinating all of those financial strategies. Carson Private Client will work with your current team of advisors to customize a strategy that manages all aspects of your life and wealth, giving you back the time to focus on what matters most. Complex needs require sophisticated solutions. Reach out to our office at 402-779-8989 to schedule your consultation. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Okay, let's continue our episode. So can I just ask a quick question on, so capacity, what does that mean, if I have capacity? So... Capacity has a legal definition when when we're looking at whether a will or a trust should be set aside. And um, it has to be shown for the will to be valid. Capacity is shown when the person who has passed away um, at the time of signing the will or the trust knew the extent of his or her property. So knew what he or she had, what she owned, what, you know, she had the farm, she had the house, she had this much um, kinds of accounts with cash assets, things like that. She has uh, a general knowledge of what the natural objects of her bounty would have been. And that has sort of been understood to mean she knows, she can understand who we as society would expect to be receiving her property, her bounty, and can make a decision about whether uh, she wants to kind of deviate from what one would expect to happen with passing assets at someone's death. Um, And capacity doesn't necessarily mean that... Um, I'm completely intact in all my cognitive skills, right? I've had clients, you could be in early stages of dementia, and everybody will assume that they have no capacity to execute a testamentary instrument. But that's not necessarily true. In the early phases of you may still be able to understand the objects of your bounty and what you have. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's actually been said to be a fairly low standard among standards that have to be shown, you know, for capacity. There's different, you know, you have capacity to enter a contract, um, capacity to do other things. The capacity to enter a will is a relatively low standard. So when I'm talking about you have to know the extent of your property, you have to understand the general disposition of how the will will pass the property at your death. Um, it's a, um, a, a, obviously a layperson's understanding, and it's not that you have to understand kind of the minutiae and details of it, but you have to be able to, you know, understand what is happening in the will and convey that intent, and it's a low bar to meet. And so sometimes, since it is really a low bar, if you have somebody who has, hey, like today I have pretty solid capacity, yesterday maybe not so much, but... The other thing that we can look at when somebody has, hey, they're in that early stages of dementia, they still remember all this, but their capacity may be somewhat diminished, especially if you're looking at it from other legal standards. Can that go to, can diminished capacity be a factor in undue influence? Yeah, I think that that's a great point. Um, The capacity is a low standard, but undue influence takes account of a lot of the factors surrounding the person's life 
at the time that they're entering a will or signing a trust. Undue influence is a much more fluid type of claim. Um, looking at all of those circumstances, looking at not only the person's um, mental state and condition, but you know who are they living with? Who is part of their life? Is there an opportunity to influence? Is there a motivation by somebody to influence? And then looking at what actually is stated as their intent in the will or the trust to see if that really makes sense given what the circumstances of their life were at the time. And if you're looking at the documents, trust and will, and it's after death, what are you really looking at to see if you had this lack of capacity or undue influence? Well, for lack of capacity, you know, as we've kind of touched on, it's really going to hinge on the person's condition at the time of entering the will or signing the trust documents. And so if the person has passed away when you're trying to make that determination, you're really going to be focusing on a lot of medical evidence if that's available, and you're going to be focusing on understanding what the person's capabilities were based on what other people who were around that person at the time can tell you about. Um, also, some of the best ways to understand the person's capacity is if they worked with an attorney in entering the will and the trust, that should be documented by the attorney. And ideally, the attorney can speak to having made a decision that the person had that capacity, and that's real strong, probably the best evidence of a person having the capacity at the time because an expert, the attorney, has made that determination. So as best practices for a person who's on the planning side, what I want to make sure is if I'm meeting with somebody and I have doubts this capacity, is it also helpful to require them to have some kind of evaluation? Yes. You know, if there are substantial doubts about a person's capacity to enter into a will, I think that an attorney should definitely give thought to making that kind of recommendation that a competency exam is done. Um, other ways to do that would be to uh, involve another attorney you know, we've done that in our office where for whatever reason you're having some doubts about whether there's capacity or whether there might be some influence going on to involve somebody else to bring in as a second opinion to sit down with the person and try to make that kind of determination and ask those kinds of questions too. If I have like somebody I'm worried about undue influence and I can't get them to leave, their, and I'm pretty strong about kicking them out, yeah. but if all else fails, I do bring somebody else and start talking to this person <laughs> while I'm talking to the client. Well, in your in preparing for this, one of the things that you brought up was the Anna Nicole Smith litigation, which happens to be one of my favorite topics. <laughs> Can you fill us in a little bit on what type of case that was? Oh, you know, it's been... Has it been a decade or maybe 15 or 20 years ago since that was in the news? Um, my recollection is that that involved Anna Nicole Smith marrying a very elderly gentleman who uh, had a lot of wealth in Texas and um, becoming the sole or the primary beneficiary named in his will and in his estate plan. And then after he passed away... Um, that was vigorously contested in litigation by, I believe, his children. And um, do you remember the result of that? I suppose you probably do. So, yeah, it's actually one that I speak on, which is because I love the whole concept of the interference with testimony intent, which some states have recognized that as a tort and others have not. 
And like Nebraska, for instance, says, oh, you can do everything in probate. But he had actually promised to give her certain things. And so she filed in district court. And I don't remember all the causes without going back and looking but on the um, interference with testimony intent. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, and so by what the Sana did, so he actually had made her a promise. She did ultimately prevail, but it was a whole, like, years of litigation. But I always use that. What I recall about that that I thought was an important fact is that the court said not everything can be addressed through probate. So if you have, say, a life insurance policy, which wasn't the case in there, but so that is a contract and it passes outside of probate. So that doesn't go through the probate. So I always say that I think that it's a little incomplete to say that most of these issues can be addressed in probate. Now, if it can be addressed in the probate process, but you have to be an interested person and all kinds of other things to be able to address it in the probate process. And so that was kind of what that case stood out for me was saying this is a tort that you know I personally think should be recognized in most states in some degree. Well, so what other types of lawsuits might come up in this capacity in the area of trust and estates? Well, besides those I mentioned um, regarding capacity, regarding undue influence, um, you can have claims of forgery, which I mentioned earlier, um, and that is just exactly as the term suggests. You're uh, alleging that the signature on a will or the signature on a trust was not actually made by the person whose name it is in. That, that kind of claim is typically going to require testimony from witnesses who say that they witnessed the person sign it and can testify to the signature looking to be like the signature that they expect to be from the person um, who is who is who had the will or who had the trust and can involve um, experts on handwriting analysis and forensic handwriting to look at the signature look at the ink on the paper look at you know the history of the person's handwriting and give an opinion on whether they think that that document was forged or not another type would be fraud which is you know also as the name suggests some kind of fraud went into the will or the trust there was some deception or some kind of lies told to a person to induce them to enter into the will or enter into the trust and so you can move to set aside a will on that basis the others that i mentioned would be where there's competing wills and so, um, you know, a person can sign a will at one point in their life in 1985 and then sign another will at, in 1995, and there can be, you know, following their death, some kind of dispute about which will ought to control and which will is valid. And that's actually a fairly common dispute, as I understand it. You'll see, because the later will didn't necessarily revoke, or there's no document prepared revoking the prior will, Things like that. Yeah, and that would be a point for practitioners, I guess, in estate planning. And I, you know, I think commonly now all wills will, all wills should, I should say it that way, should include some kind of statement about revoking all prior wills. But I think if you're looking farther in the past, if there's wills that were done, you know, decades ago but are coming up for probate now, there's a chance you might not see those kinds of best practices in the will. And then you're left with a question about, well, which will is the valid will? Because neither says it revokes the other. And we had a case come in just recently where there's two wills that were signed on the same date. 
I have no which one. And neither of them revokes the other or refers to the other, so we have no idea. And they're not time-stamped, I assume. They're not time-stamped, <laughs> and they have different provisions. So that will probably end up probably end up your way. So, But I really like when we are preparing for this, and you talk about a lot about, because we, you know, as legal visionaries, well, how can those of us who are on the planning end really help avoid disputes? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's things that clients can do when they are ready to make a will or ready to make a trust and looking to work with an attorney to do that. And there's things that, of course, the practitioners who are the attorneys can do, you know, um, When a person is coming in to meet with an attorney, I think it's always a good idea to really take some time to reflect, be able to be clear and precise in what you want to happen. Think about all of your assets. You know, it's it's more than just uh, your house and your bank accounts. It can be, do you have firearms that you need to figure out how to deal with? It can be, you know, uh, livestock, farm animals, pets, Things like that, jewelry, personal items, heirlooms. So there's a lot to think about. Art on the wall that people have no idea how it's owned is one of the one I found really interesting recently. Yeah, that would be. And you know there's got to be somebody who grew up with that art on the wall that really wants it. And so are they going to be surprised if they don't end up with it after a person passes away? Well, and the the biggest issue I've run into with it was because I'm not an art person, but I have... A lot of clients have art, so I've learned a lot about it. But the thing is, so, you know, you have this way that you can pass assets by a laundry list, which is for personal effects. And so we had, and it ended up being a 250000 piece of art on the wall that we tracked back the purchase was the husband and the wife, but they bought it as tenants in common. So husband owned an undivided one-half interest and wife owned an undivided one-half interest. The painting was given to one particular person by laundry list. And the problem was that the you know, decedent who gave it to that child didn't own the entirety and the surviving spouse didn't want it to go to that kid. So that's one thing I've gotten where, oh, on those personal effects, if they have titles, we have to take a look at that titling. So now I've come to realize, so there's an area people refer to as art law, and art law is not really its own area of law so much as it's a combination of property law and trust law and a few other different areas that you have to really know to be able to bring those together. But so you talk a lot about being really clear in the planning end of the process. How can those of us on the planning end really do that? So if a case that I worked on comes to you because an heir challenged it, what types of stuff can I have built into my planning end that are going to make this easier and clearer? When you're on the side following a person's death, you're reconstructing what happened. And so documentation documents, documents, documents of what the person wanted to happen, what you were doing in response to what they asked you to do, um, what the final version of the document is, and um, documentation of transmitting it back to them and giving them instructions of where to keep it, how to keep it safe, what to do with it, and whether or not you're holding on to copies of it or not. Things like that are, are vital, I think, to show Um, kind of the custody of the document, the chain of how the document 
came to be in its current form and documentation in writing that it reflects what the person wanted and that that was confirmed not just once but multiple times in that chain even after it was signed and and is notarized and put into effect that it's all confirmed you know we talked about um where if you have some doubts about the person uh the person or the surrounding circumstances of the person's family or there's some infighting going on or you just have reason to think that there's likelihood of a dispute after the person passes away that might be a situation where you actually want to get the client's permission to videotape the final meeting and execution of the document so that if there's any question about what they agreed to you've got the questions that were asked of them to confirm it all and the responses right out of that person's mouth on video or on a recording as some of the best evidence of that after the fact. And one of the things that you've commented on is how important it is for us as planners to have clients communicating honestly and openly with us about their intents. I think sometimes to do that, if they have another family member or a potential beneficiary coming in, and even, you know, I'll kick them out and send them out into the waiting room, but they still know that they're there. So a lot of times I'll do things like, okay, great. Um, let's talk about, you know, get the person I'm worried about out of the room. Talk to the client. I might even sometimes, if I think they're having any issue communicating with me, get my ego out of the way and get another attorney in the room. I think you mentioned that as an option try and get disclosure. But the other thing I do is follow up in writing. And I might ask consent. I'm not big on you need to disclose your planning to all of the beneficiaries before you die because there's a lot of reasons not to do that. But in some instances, I might encourage disclosing some of the plan overall to some of the beneficiaries. What are your thoughts on some of those practices? I think those are all great ideas. You know, I as a non-practitioner, I can see, because I see it from the back end of the process, why the disclosure seems like a great idea. Of course, you could be causing huge family problems if you disclose the fact that you've decided to leave out sibling A in favor of sibling B, and then you've started the fight before you've passed away, and that may be what you're trying to avoid, right, and how mm-hmm. you've structured something. Um, but, you know, I, I imagine, Mary, that you must use your intuition to kind of also, you know, determine if there's some kind of reason to think that influence is going on. And I don't think that that can be discounted. Having an experienced attorney who knows some of those red flags to look for and is uh, is alert to it and will ask somebody to step out of the room or will get the second opinion are some of the best steps I think that practitioners can take to avoid the fight after the fact. And I think we really have to be willing to do that. I was just taught that the person sitting across from me signing the will and trust, that's who my loyalty runs to. And so it's just simply my job to remove overbearing family or friends out of the room. The other thing I talk about is that sometimes people really do change their minds at the end of the life, and that's not necessarily. So if somebody comes in and they've been doing one approach their entire life, and I've been documenting testimony intent, and they come in and they say, I want to get do this, and this is a big change from their long-term testamentary plan, then I go to really extra lengths to document the whys of that and talk to them about and to make sure there's not that undue influence. But sometimes people really do 
change their mind at the you know, at the end of life based on what's going it. I always say you cannot underestimate the value of being cared for at the end of life. So when should we get another opinion? You talked about that a little bit. Is there any other times we've talked about it if we're worried about capacity, influence, any other value in bringing in somebody else for a second opinion? I think if you have some doubts about whether you're communicating right with the person communicating clearly or understanding what they're trying to tell you, you know, sometimes you might just not click. Um, there's never, I don't think, any great harm in doing that because you're really just making sure that what they're asking for is going to be honored and reflected in what the ultimate plan is. And one of your comments is on technology and using technology, but it's not always the friend of your older clients. Can you clarify that? Yeah, and and older clients or maybe just different kinds of clients. You know, I think um, for me, I'm highly reliant on email and and technology to get things done and to get things signed that can be signed electronically and done that way um, or to communicate letters or, you know, to understand, you know, clarify things, you know, things like that. A lot of communications happen electronically um, or by phone or by Zoom now or Teams or whatever. I think there's certainly still a large part of the population and especially the population that is on the older side who maybe um, – have, you know, more at the forefront of their mind getting their estate plan in order, who are not as reliant and not as um, conversant in technology. And to them, in order to really be comfortable to express what they want to happen, they need to sit down in person with somebody and go over it. And so I think, you know, a good practitioner needs to key into that and understand what their client is most comfortable doing and then um, accommodate them. And there are certainly some great technology solutions, especially in like the digital assets areas and even personal effects. So what we've learned to do for that client population is to actually, we have a few people trained that just are their concierge guides to helping them use technology. And so I had, you know, I've had a 93-year-old client the other day <laughs> text me pictures of his latest deed for a farmland purchase or something like that. So it's uh, interesting what we can when we give somebody to help them. <clears throat> well, we're at the end of our, our time here, and so I just want to know if you have any last thoughts. You know, we've talked about some of the situations where a will or a trust can be contested after somebody passes away. I think, you know, maybe one takeaway is that with proper planning, with really good advice and working with the right attorney, it's a, it's in the grand scheme of things a fairly low risk that that should happen. It's something that can be guarded against. And so, you know, we're talking about worst case scenarios, but it's something that can be prevented and addressed with really good planning. So, yeah, I like to see that it's legal Zoom keeping you busy and not lawyers practicing <laughs> in had, the area, right? I have had one of those. Yeah, no, we've seen a few of those. Like, we'll just send this over. Well, thanks so much for being here today, Bonnie. That's all for now. I want to thank our sponsors, Interactive Legal and Carson Wealth. Thanks for listening to today's episode and stay tuned for our weekly releases. 
Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries is made available by the firm and its attorneys for educational purposes and to provide general information, not to provide specific legal advice. Use of the Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship between you and the firm or any of its attorneys. The Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice, and you should contact an attorney in your state about any legal needs or questions you may have. A Media Production.